The issue of immigration has been dominating the news lately. Countries in Europe are putting up new barriers in an effort to control the flow of refugees, and American presidential campaigns on both sides are mentioning reasons to limit immigration. The worry is usually centered around some combination of immigrants threatening physical security, changing our local culture to something we don't want, and probably most of all, stealing our jobs. A lot of economic literature exists suggesting that allowing for more immigration can make a huge positive impact on people from lower-income countries and the places they migrate to. Some recent papers have challenged these findings and claim an economic case can be made for limiting labor mobility. On today's episode, we address the economic arguments for and against migration restrictions. You're listening to the Success Project podcast series. The NYU Development Research Institute, DRI, was founded by William Easterly and Yao Nyarko. DRI, understanding the barriers to growth and development. I'm Will Compernal, and here to talk with me today about the economics of migration restrictions is Michael Clemens of the Center for Global Development and co-author with Lant Pritchett of the paper, The New Economic Case for Migration Restrictions, an assessment. Michael, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. Now, before we get into the specific uh, topics brought up in your paper, your paper focuses on the specific criticisms of lifting restrictions on immigration. But before we get into those, I want to set the scene for the economic case for allowing more migration. So where do the payoffs of lifting migration restrictions come from? I think to a lot of people, especially non-economists, it's a zero-sum game where the migrants will come uh, to usually a richer country and take away jobs from the natives. So where are the where are the payoffs coming from? We have to talk about the economics of this for a second. So one of the most incredible things about the world economy is the huge wage differences that you see between rich and poor countries. Uh, for exactly the same person, wages can differ by hundreds of percent. I, I'm talking about a construction worker in Ghana can make like a tenth of what a construction worker in the United States can make, even if we're talking about a Ghanaian construction worker in the United States, that you have workers who, simply because they were born in Ghana and live in Ghana, are not as productive as they could be, only because of where they are, is is not just uh, uh, in, in a certain sense unfair simply because people don't choose where they were born but beyond that it has this impoverishing effect on the world economy it is a a misallocation of labor in economic terms across space just because allowing people to work in different places could make them one by one more productive and what's interesting to me when you talk about these the the economic literature and the gains of migration is how how much those those impacts dwarf everything else. So when we think about the gains to liberalizing trade or to you know trying to figure out exactly what kind of foreign aid works, it's it's nothing compared to how much lowering migration restrictions helps these poor people from lower income countries. And so it reminds me of the the Bob Lucas quote that when you look at the cumulative effects of small differences in economic growth and how big that 
impact makes over a long period of time, it's hard to think about anything else. And so for me, when I hear about these gains to lifting migration restrictions, it's hard to think about anything else when you're when you're thinking about helping these poor people from lower income countries. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you're bringing up a second aspect, which is not only do restrictions collectively impoverish the world, but they specifically impoverish some of the, the poorest people in the world. And so, uh, you, you know, even even if you don't care about the aggregate welfare of Earth, uh, if you have a development interest, this is certainly an, an area where uh, policy analysis should focus. And yet, as you point out, if you look at the relative attention that, say, trade barriers or foreign aid have gotten in the economics literature versus the attention that migration restrictions have gotten, there's no contest. Migration restrictions are the subject of a tiny little sliver of research attention relative to those others. And whatever the reasons are, uh, they, 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 those reasons are not the relative economic importance of these things. I want to go into some of the common criticisms or skeptical points that people have about the, the gains to migration before we go into the specifics of your paper. So how are these these effects distribute across the native population. I know you talked about if, if we're going to focus on development, it's really good for the, the migrants. But of course, especially in the current political atmosphere, people are very concerned about taking care of you know their own kind. So what effects does increasing immigration have on the native population of, let's say, the U.S.? This is a, a very important point, and it's something that people have been concerned about uh, when one by one various barriers in the labor market have been disassembled. So in the 1790s, you can look up transcripts of the U.S. Congress debating proposals to early proposals to abolish slavery. And uh, there they are talking about the potential for uh, depressing effects on white wages and white unemployment due to glutting the labor market with all of these black workers who suddenly owned their own labor and could sell their labor where and at at what price they wanted. In the 1920s and 30s, this was a founding concept of the apartheid system in South Africa. People were very concerned about the effects of allowing what they called native African workers to work in white areas and take jobs that whites were taking, what effect would that have on employment and wages for white workers? And and it goes on and on. Uh, that doesn't mean that those concerns are illegitimate or, or not theoretically possible. I, I just point out that they uh, frequently show up and are maybe uh, quantitatively exaggerated uh, again and again. I don't think anybody would argue now that the U.S. would be made economically better off or would have a healthier labor market if African Americans were banned from uh, owning their own labor or, or even being citizens, but that was once conventional wisdom of the United States. So we need to take these claims with, a let's say, a quantitative grain of salt. And the, the bottom line is that labor economists uh, studying the effects of immigration on on Uh, workers, particularly low-skill workers, find uh, very small effects or sometimes positive effects on their wages and employment. So Giovanni Peri at UC Davis has shown that even immigrant workers and native workers who have observably the same skill, say two different people who both have a high school degree, can complement each other in the labor force 
because they tend to specialize in tasks that emphasize their relative strengths. This is, this is one of the reasons why in uh, studies of the effects of labor immigrants on, on labor markets, the effects of refugees on labor markets, the uh, uh, overall effect on the wages of native workers with this substitution effect combined with the stimulus effect uh, hovers near zero. And even the effects on the lowest skill workers, uh, most studies find to be small or even positive. So, so there are two, obviously, there's point A and point B in any migration story. And we're, you, you, were, you were just talking about the, the destination and how we can see the effects of migration on that. But, of course, there's also the origin country. And so I think some people have uh, skepticism that um, there could be negative effects from the origin country in terms of brain drain. The people migrating are probably disproportionately well-motivated, um, perhaps better educated, better skilled. And so could that mean that these lower-income countries are losing some of their best and brightest, and, you know, you could sort of rationalize migration restrictions as a way to protect these these origin countries? So it, the key word you just said is restrictions. <laughs> uh, think about a poor neighborhood of a city that you know well. Um, there are kids who grow up there. Some of them are naturally talented, really smart, but they're growing up in a tough situation. There might be violence. There's certainly poverty all around them. What would happen to the development of that neighborhood if you didn't allow kids to leave, specifically to keep those talented, uh, bright young kids there by force? Because remember, we're talking about restrictions here. Do you think that that would change that neighborhood into a great place to live and cause development there and solve its problems? Or might it even intensify those problems? I suppose that kind of goes to this this instinct to think we need to save the poor neighborhood, but really what you want to do is save the poor people in that neighborhood. It's not about the place, it's about the people. I, I couldn't agree more. I can think of places where people were restricted from leaving. That was the explicit policy of uh, East Germany during the Cold War years. It, it was even designed around brain drain features. It wasn't just ideological. You, you could actually move easily from east to west after you retired. What they were worried about was, was losing low productivity workers. And if you have seen the, the data on east versus west Germany, you see how that went. That doesn't seem to have uh, caused development to happen in the east. Uh, North Korea, Cuba, or places that have specifically uh, restricted migration with this idea, like you're saying, uh, that somehow restricting the choices that individuals can make will cause development within a specific place. And it's entirely conjectural. There, that has never been shown for any neighborhood, region of a country, any rural area that's stopping smart people from leaving there developed that place uh, in, in any social or economic sense, and certainly not for any country. And it, it, for a policy so hypothetical, it's unclear to me that we should be willing to impose restrictions on the lives and ambitions of people we don't know, restrictions that we would certainly never accept for ourselves if people we never heard of across the world were imposing them on us, unless we have some kind of evidence that they are actually capable of producing these hypothetical social benefits. 
I have to think also there's the um, the aspect of remittances. A lot of times when these workers go to richer countries, they send money back to their um, original countries, and that can even complement the development there even more. Remittances are vast in the world right now. They are between three and four times the amount of foreign aid. And not just that, but they're completely different from foreign aid. Remittances, by and large, go directly into the pockets of people who at the global level are very low income. And that's certainly not the case with foreign aid. A lot of that goes to contracting companies, intermediaries. Certainly uh, not most of it goes directly into the pockets of poor people. And uh, for some reason that the effects of remittances on development are systematically uh, ignored and discounted. Uh, a, a stunning example is the Millennium Development Goals of 2000, which were a really noble enterprise. But even in 2000, even back then, remittances were already much larger than foreign aid, although the, the gap has expanded since then. But in 2000, when those were being negotiated, remittances were much larger than foreign aid, and the entire Millennium Development Goals document and the roadmap to achieving them not only doesn't mention any positive impact of, of migration, doesn't mention remittances at all, but actually mentions migration specifically and exclusively in negative terms. It says that uh, rural-urban migration increases poverty in urban areas, and it says that international migration contributes to the spread of disease. That, that was all the Millennium Development Goals had to say about migration and had uh, not a word to say about remittances which already exceeded foreign aid. And that, that, that can only be chalked up to just mentality, uh, wow. the mentality that you referred to earlier, that for some reason, uh, uh, especially people who work in development, with, uh, even with the best of intentions, seem to focus exclusively on, on places and not think about the, the benefits that the decentralized actions of individuals can have for development. Earlier when you talked about how an increase in migration would affect uh, the, the native population, I feel like economists tend to focus very much on the wage aspect. But there's also not, not only uh, the cultural impact, social cohesion, and the political impact, but there's a cost to the public sector because if you have this massive shock of people just coming in, you know, there's social services that every developed country has and that, that could put a strain on them. I know um, for a year I worked in a school in Austin, Texas, where 77% of the students were English language learners. And what that did was it put a huge strain on the public schools there because then they were devoting so many resources to just teaching English and, and not the, the, the curriculum that I think they wanted to focus on. And so is there any sign of what an increase in migration will do uh, as a net effect um, in terms of the, the fiscal balances of the public sector? So there's a, a study, uh, I think it's from the, the GAO in the U.S., showing that while the, the fiscal effect at the national level and specifically at the federal level is positive, there are many local governments where it is not positive. High immigrant concentration areas are bearing uh, some of the, the burden and other areas of the country are getting the benefits. So that's a, that's a problem. I think there is a, a very sensical, intuitive, insti um, intuitive thought that um, because these are 
mostly low-income individuals that are migrating. A lot of them are high-skilled and high-income. But, you know, in a country like the U.S. or really any developed country, the higher-income people pay more taxes than, you know, they're, they're net payees of taxes. And so if you have a huge flux of lower-income people, those are, that's sort of adding to the, the piece, um, the chunk of the pie that takes takes more out of the system than puts in, or, or you know, they, they have more of a benefit um, than, than they pay in. But you're saying that still, maybe due to something like uh, not being eligible for social, secu- um, social welfare spending, um, and just the the increase of their wages and the and the labor supply, this net effect is still positive. The fact that there's a net positive benefit on the economy and on the fiscus means there is space for new institutions to shift resources around to make to 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 compensate losers, and that's very important. If uh, we go back to the 50s and 60s. And there were a lot of schools where uh, a lot of uh, universities where women could not attend, were not attending, were not admitted. And somebody pointed out, well, look, women entering these schools in the long run and on, on average is going to have a positive benefit because they'll get an, a, a better education, they'll earn more, they'll pay more in taxes. But right at the beginning, there's going to be this big fiscal hit from women attending schools. And therefore, we shouldn't admit women to to those schools or admit them in very, very small numbers. We, we would never come to that conclusion. We would say, okay, what are the fiscal mechanisms that are going to be needed to allow this transition to happen? One of them might be more a greater role for student loans so that those women are paying eventually for more of their own education. And this is what we do in, as you alluded to, in, in Social Security there's a, a compromise is struck between our desire to protect elderly people in general and the fact that it's theoretically possible that people could could come to the U.S. right at the end of their lives and start taking these benefits without ever having paid in. The compromise that we have is you you cannot get Social Security benefits no matter how much you need them or how poor you are when you're old unless you have paid in to the system for 40 quarters or more that that is 10 years or more if you if you worked all the time that's a middle ground where some of the responsibility is being shifted to the migrant while at, at the same time maintaining some of the social goal of just protecting old people against uh against having to be poor when they're old and these are the kind of institutional innovations you would look to if the knee-jerk reaction weren't, well, let's just exclude people, which which seems ridiculous when you think about excluding women from universities, but for some reason doesn't seem ridiculous when we're talking about immigration. I want to go into the specific points in your paper that you address, because some people think that although we have these, these signs of economic gains, there's actually an economic case to be made for keeping migration restrictions, that these restrictions can actually be a gain in economic efficiency. So what is the argument that you address called compensating differential, and how does it hold up? A compensating differential is an economics term. It's, it's really simple. It just means uh, a, a, a wage premium that is paid to offset distasteful things about that job. So uh, I remember when I was a, a kid and realized that the sanitation workers who take who were taking garbage from in front of our house made about the same as my mom, who was a nurse. 
and that that really shocked me as a ten year old. You know why she went to all this school and they didn't, and it's simply because you you have to and should. Pay people to offset the displeasure of having to work with garbage. So, so the argument there is that people accept a lower wage in a country like Haiti because they prefer that location over the U.S. Then is the implication also that the restrictions don't even need to be there? That we shouldn't even worry about these um, in the case of compensating differential because. If we remove them, nothing's going to happen. These people already are choosing to stay in their home countries. If it's really the case that the displeasure of moving from Haiti to the U.S. is already at this moment making people just indifferent between living in Haiti or the U.S., then that means we don't need any visa restriction or uh, or or quota on the number of Haitians who can come to the U.S. The second point of opposition your paper brings up is contingent variation. So, can you describe what that is and what the the strength of the argument behind it is so contingent valuation is just uh, is another term from economics it it it, it it's very simple it just means uh, asking people how much they value things that there aren't markets for one of the uh, objections that has come up in the literature documenting these very very large gains to relaxing restrictions on migration is a paper by uh, Frederick Dauquier and co-authors in the Scandinavian Journal of Economics. And essentially they claim that if restrictions were relaxed, very few additional people would be interested in moving. They, uh, they rest this conclusion on a, a poll question. In an ideal world, if you had the opportunity, would you like to emigrate? Based on this, the people's answers to this uh, survey question, they conclude that if there were no restrictions whatsoever, no visas, no quotas, uh, absolutely free migration all over the world, only 1% of India would be interested in living in any other country, and only 8% of uh, the poor African nation of Côte d'Ivoire. And th this is terribly problematic for the same reason that contingent valuation surveys are not often used in serious economics, and have their use has been uh, condemned by several Nobel laureates, uh, including Canero, Bob Solo, and uh, Peter Diamond, and it's it's uh, it's because the answers that people give are extremely sensitive to to all kinds of things. They're they're extremely sensitive to how you ask the question. So in migration surveys, you could imagine uh, asking a Senegalese youth, "Do you want to migrate to Spain?" And that person knows several people who have done it, and the, per the people they knew had to trek across the desert, uh, had to pay smugglers thousands of dollars, had to risk death to cross the Mediterranean. They might say no to that. I'm not interested in that. At the same time, if you ask them quite a different question, which is in a hypothetical world where you could get on a plane and legally go take formal employment in Spain whenever you wanted and return home to visit your family when you, whenever you wanted, then would you want to go? The same person might say yes. But, of course, this, this poll question is not capturing that hypothetical world. The third opposition point that your paper brings up is uh, what's called the epidemiological case. 
And when we were talking before about how identical workers in two different countries, let's say th- things that we typically think of as as being predictors of income, so education, social class, gender, maybe even race, when you hold those identical, the location that they're working in is still really, really significant. And so then it makes you think that there is this X factor causing the ability for wages in one country to be much higher than the other. And whatever that is, you know, who knows? We can we can speculate. Maybe it's institutions, culture, whatever. But there's something that is making a worker in Haiti be poorer than an identical worker in the U.S. doing the same job. And then I think people make the argument: Well, if that worker from Haiti comes to the U.S., are they also bringing with them that X factor that makes them poor? So this seems potentially plausible, but also very difficult to test. So how does your paper? address the likelihood of this being a fair criticism. And can you elaborate a little bit more on the intuition behind it? In our in the paper, we treat it as an empirical question. Uh, if, if there is such a rate of migration, what would it take quantitatively, empirically, what would it take for migration to substantially alter institutions and culture in the destination country so much that it harmed economic performance there and even offset the clear economic gains from migration. Uh, And this is what uh, Collier and Borjas uh, explicitly claim, that this effect could be so large that it could substantially offset or even even erase the global economic gains from migration. If it were the case that uh, these culture and institutions transmitted by migrants could affect those things in the destination country, there would need to be, first of all, a lot of transmission of those things a lot of the a lot of that x factor that determines how how productive labor and capital are in an economy would have to be not geographic characteristics of the poor countries not characteristics of the government institutions there both of which are left behind when you move but transmissible things in individuals something that individuals can bring with them cultural attitudes second it would have to be the case that assimilation is relatively slow it, it could be that uh, whatever makes poor countries poor is in in some degree transmissible, but that is uh, quickly eroded once you get to the destination country. And more than these things, uh, there could be multiplier effects of some kind that in, in the paper we call congestion effects. That is, for just a few migrants coming, transmission and assimilation dynamics could be different from if there are huge numbers coming. There could be some non-linearity. And I, I think that makes um, some good sense because a lot of times when there's a, a small number of, of a community, you, you try to blend in a little bit more and maybe there's more of a tendency to assimilate. But let's say tomorrow, 80% of the American population was born somewhere else, then there's, there's going to be less blending in and more of retaining their, their origin country. So there, that's sort of a, uh, an effect that once you get to a certain point becomes significant. So there's quite a lot of experience with this, uh, uh, the possibility of, of high transmission, slow assimilation, and high congestion somehow leading to uh, lower productivity. But the magnitudes of those effects seen in, in real-world experience are, are just not anywhere near enough to offset the enormous economic gains from migration. So, so even with the most generous parameters given to this opposing argument, you still find that it's not a very strong case. 
the way that my co-author Lant Pritchett uh, puts it is that the the economic argument for migration restrictions is an argument against most migration restrictions. The, that is, the, the if you take seriously the qualitative idea that uh, people moving from poor countries could impoverish the places where they go, and then uh, quantitatively measure well how 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 big can we realistically expect that effect to be, it would suggest that that current levels of migration in economic terms are much too low uh, and that the restrictions are, are much too restrictive. I want to talk about a real example in history that shows a, a sudden shock to a local population. You know, I think when people th- hear these theoretical implications of the effects of migration on wages, they only see the native, the, uh, the migrants taking the native jobs and then when you talk about really lowering the restrictions to migration or even open borders or something, there's this crazy idea in their head that what happens when tons of people just show up one day, what are we going to do? So talk about what the Muriel Boatlift shows about this a huge mass of migrants coming to one location very quickly and how it sort of affects the different mechanisms that we've been talking about. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, in the, over the, the the space of a, a few months, uh, right at the beginning of the 1980s, it, it was a one-off agreement between President Carter and Fidel Castro to allow a, a bunch of uh, political refugees, essentially, to leave Cuba and arrive in the U.S. Um, they left from Mariel Bay, which is uh, just to the west of Havana, so they're they're called the Marielitos. It's called the Mariel Boatlift. A lot of them went to to Miami, and uh, so many of them uh, settled permanently in Miami that it was essentially a 7% increase in the size of the labor force of Miami in in three months. So just a gigantic uh, increase. Uh, As I mentioned, the immigration to the U.S. right now is a third of a percent a year, and here we're talking about 7% in three months, which would be 28% in a year, so just just orders of magnitude more than uh, than immigration that you see across the whole country. If there were to be big effects on the labor market, this is precisely where you would see it. And, and, and a lot of those people, I assume, then didn't even know English. They weren't particularly well educated. So they, 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 they had a lot of obstacles um, standing in their way of, of contributing effectively to the Miami economy. Definitely. It's been shown that they were much lower skilled than typical native workers. As you said, language skills much lower. And more than that, suddenly arriving in the middle of their work lives in a different place, it's hard to get a foothold, hard to get started. You need to establish connections. So really everything working against them. And it was shown in a a monumental paper in 1990 by David Card of UC Berkeley that there were no detectable effects on the the wages of the wages or employment of uh, workers who were already in Miami at that time. So the Mariel Boatlift shows even when a massive shock of low-skilled migrants arrive in a city, the effects are not only positive for the new migrants, but also don't cause the doomsday scenarios that those advocating for migration restrictions might predict. It can be tough to really tell what lowering migration restrictions will do to a given region, but I think this historical case shows the common fears against migration don't materialize the way one might think. 
Michael, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you so much. It's been great. This episode of The Success Project was recorded at the NYU Journalism School, hosted by Will Compernell and produced by Carmen Cuesta Visit nyudri.org to listen to more episodes in our series, read Michael's paper, and find out more about The Success Project. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this publication are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. <laughs>